Luke 11 in your Bibles. I have a two-part sermon between this morning and this evening in Luke, uh, so we will not be in Ecclesiastes, obviously. This morning I'm going to give the exposition, this evening I'm going to spend the entire time on application. So this morning exposition, there will be obviously application that bubbles up regularly, the Holy Spirit uh, speaks through the Word of God even before I get to the application part, so uh, it's not as if we won't have any of that. However, our focus is going to be on the exposition of Luke 11 verses 27 to 36, the light which is in the, uh, very much so, um, in line with what we spoke of this morning in Sunday school as we talked through uh, why we need to share the gospel. We are continuing in the gospel of Luke, and the point of the gospels, those four gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to teach us of the life of the most important man who ever walked upon the earth. The word gospel literally means good news, and it is good news because found in the gospel is the very essence of redemption. Redemption of man from the fruit of his own sinful choices The gospel tells us this, that sin is anything we say, we do, or we think that is against God's character, his will, or his word. The gospel tells us that by this standard, we must understand that all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are all sinners. Born with a sin nature, confirmed through the sins which we commit. The Bible tells us that sin separates us from a holy God, that God is holy, that we are sinful. And because we are sinful, we are separated from fellowship with a holy God. A holy God cannot fellowship with sinful people. And so you and I cannot, as sinners, have fellowship with God. This means that we cannot have a personal relationship with him in life. But it also means that we cannot be admitted into his abode after death. We are eternal creatures. We cannot be admitted into heaven to live with God because we are sinful. And this is a problem because we're eternal beings. We live a temporary existence upon this earth, but we have an eternal spirit which must go somewhere when we die. And if we're sinners, so that we cannot be with the abode of God in heaven, then where do we go? Well, we also know that God is just. That means he cannot simply ignore the sins that we commit. Sin must be paid for. And that payment, according to the word of God, is eternal separation from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. And as sinful men, we cannot abide eternally with God. And so the destination of every man is this eternal torment. So we have a real problem here, right? We are separated from God by sin. We are all sinners. We cannot undo sins that have already been committed. The penalty for sin is eternal conscious torment. Well, we need some good news, don't we? (laughs) We need some good news. And that is what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. And the good news is this. You are a sinner, but God loves you. And because you have no way to undo your sin, no way that you can pay for your sin enough to be able to get into a heaven that cannot admit sinners, God chose to pay your debt for you. So God the Father sent God the Son into this world to become a man. And the scriptures tell us he lived a perfect life, never once sinning. 
and preach salvation from sin through belief in his identity, his message, his work. And what is his message? His message is this, that nothing you or I can do can get us into right fellowship with God. That nothing you or I can do can reconcile us to God, for we have already offended Him. We have already fallen short of God's glory. That without God's mercy, we are doomed to that eternity of judgment, but that through God's mercy, we can be saved. And what does this mercy look like? Well, it looks like death. The Bible says God the Father was pleased to send His Son, Jesus Christ, who had never once sinned, who had never done anything wrong, to die on the cross. And as He hung upon the tree, the Bible says God took your sin and my sin and He placed it on Jesus. That God made Jesus sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus had no sin, so He bore my sin. He paid my debt. But he didn't stay dead. The Bible says that Jesus died, he was buried, but three days later, he rose again from the grave. And when he rose from the grave, the scriptures tell us, he found victory, he proclaimed victory, he claimed victory, not just over sin, but over death. And so my sin was paid for on the cross, but when Jesus rose again from the dead... He claimed victory over death, and because he lives, he has the authority to grant me life as well. So Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. He has borne the sin. He has brought. Uh, he has. He has uh, um, claimed victory over death. And now it is but for us to accept or to reject that gift. So Jesus would tell Nicodemus, "For God so loved the world." That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So the scriptures tell us that if we will accept the gift of that Jesus Christ purchased on the cross, if we will accept that we are a sinner, that there's nothing we can do to get ourselves to heaven, that we will stop trying, and that we will put our full faith and trust in that which Jesus has already done for us on the cross, and the scriptures say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what Jesus came Teaching. This is what Jesus came proclaiming. But as we've walked through Luke, and we got get here in Luke 11, we found that the people didn't much like his message, did they? They were getting to the point now where they were not interested in what Jesus had to say. They had effectively rejected his identity. And as we saw last time in in Luke 11, in our Sunday evening a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the leaders of the nation were at the point now where they were ascribing Jesus' great power and his miracles to Beelzebub, to the prince of demons, to evil itself. They had not just gotten to the point where they were saying, well, we don't like your message anymore. They were go- they were at the point where they were ascribing his message and his great works to demonic forces. 
And this is where we pick up this week in Luke 11. We'll look at verses 27 through 36. And the Bible tells us this. And it came to pass, in verse 27, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus had been speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees about Satan's strategies. And sometime after the Bible tells us, a certain woman lifts up her voice to him and speaks to him. And she blesses, not Jesus, but rather she says, Blessed be the womb that bore you the paps which you sucked. The idea there... Uh, is blessed be your mother for bringing you into the world. Now, it was intended to be a compliment upon Jesus, one which would not have necessarily been uncommon for the day to bless Jesus by blessing uh, the, the one who had brought him into the world or by blessing the circumstances which surrounded him. Uh, we, we would be tempted to, to recoil at this. Perhaps those of us in particular who have understood the out-of-balance way in which, say, the Roman Catholic Church recognizes Mary and praises and venerates Mary. But really, it's not that kind of an idea here, as far as I can tell, as far as my study has led me to believe. She's not really trying to divert the attention from Christ as much as she's trying to bless Christ in a cultural way by blessing his mother. What she said was kind. It reflected a deep appreciation of Jesus and his message. Uh, certainly in contrast to the reaction of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this woman reflects a true love for Christ and for his message. But as I mentioned, he does, Jesus does redirect her praise here. He counters her and he says that the most blessed person is not the one who is physically related to Jesus. Because physical and temporary relationships really mean nothing in the realm of the eternal. The blessed person, the blessed ones, are they who hear the word of God and keep it. How many times now have we seen this emphasis in Luke on hearing the word of God? How many times have we explored the blessing which rests upon those who receive the truths of Christ? In fact, this is not even the first time that Jesus has highlighted the blessing of belief over the blessing of a physical relationship. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus says, don't worry about my, my physical mother and my physical brethren. Let's focus upon those who are hearing the word of God. These are the ones that are related to me. These are the ones who are my family, those that hear the word of God and keep it. Those that hear the word of God and do it. So we see throughout Luke this incredibly heavy emphasis upon hearing properly the word of God. Jesus would say in Luke 7, not just hear, but be careful how you hear. We've seen this theme, and this theme has bubbled up again and again and again, and it reminds us, brothers and sisters in Christ, how important it is not just that you sit in those chairs on any given Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Tuesday night and hear the words that are coming in, not just that you open your Bible and know what the words say, but that your heart is hearing. That you have positioned your heart to receive. That you truly believe that God's word is true. That God is true and that you have humbled yourself before him. Submitted yourself to him. Sat at his feet like Mary did who chose the better part, right? 
Martha says, Jesus, have her come help me. I'm encumbered about, I'm, I'm, I'm busy serving. She's cumbered about serving is how Luke described it. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better part. Why? Because she's listening to Jesus. The better part is not the person who gets the words into their ears. It's the person who applies the words to their heart. So here again, we have another instance of hearing. It's always about the hearing, hearing the word of God, knowing what the word of God says and doing it. Don't, don't, don't let yourself be comfortable as a Christian, stopping at just knowing what the Bible says. You've got to do it. You've got to keep it. If you want to please the Lord. What we really need to understand about this interaction is how it sets the stage for what Jesus is about to say, however. Jesus speaks about his generation beginning in verse 29. The generation within which they were at that time. Now keep in mind this premise as he does so. The blessing of God is not upon men because of their physical relationships, their physical actions, their physical characteristics. The blessing of God is not upon people just because they physically hear the Bible or because they can physically say the Bible. Much rather, the blessing of God rests upon those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, we also need to keep in mind our direct context. That if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we, when we preached the last message in Luke... The leaders of the nation are now saying that Jesus is ministering in the power of Satan and his demons. Now, all of this information we keep in our minds as we read what is next. In verse 29, the Bible says this. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet, of Jonas the prophet. Now the people gathered together. Jesus says it is an evil generation. And he begins to say that this is an evil generation because he says they seek a sign. Now in our context, this is actually a response to a person who spoke well back earlier in, in Luke 11. It, it was a, a second assertion made back in Luke 11 verse 16. If you have your Bibles, you can look back at verse 16. Verse 15 and 16 in fact. We'll jump back for context. In verse 15 and 16, but some of them said he casteth out devils through Baals above the chief of devils. This was the first thing that Jesus responded to and he spends the next verses, verses 17 through 26, responding to that claim that he is casting out devils by the chief of devils. But notice in verse 16, and others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. So we have two two different assertions here. The first being he's casting out devils by the prince of devils, Beelzebub. Jesus hits that one first. And then he doesn't forget about the second one. He comes back to the second claim. Jesus, show us a sign. Give us a sign. We find the link more directly made in our parallel passage in Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would seek a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So here we see the same account, but we find that Jesus is responding to a request. Just like we we noticed, it was just broken up a little bit in Luke. But here we see the direct request and response. Master, we would seek a sign from thee. No sign will be given to this generation. And we see from Matthew 12 as well that it was asked of by the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the same that we, we saw in Luke. 
Luke. In Luke, it says the people, both for the um, casting out demons by Beelzebub and by the, the, the seeking of a sign. It says that there were certain of the people who asked this. In Matthew and Mark, it becomes more specific. And we find that the certain of the people being mentioned are the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, what is ironic about this? We would seek a sign from thee. And what's ironic about how Luke puts it together, that they they say these two things together. He casts out demons by the prince of devils, Beelzebub, and others said we would seek a sign from thee. When you put those together, it becomes very ironic, does it not? He just cast out a demon. And this was the culmination of how many miracles that we've read through in the book of Luke. Healing the sick, causing the blind to see, making the lame to walk, curing leprosy, casting out demons, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, causing fish to flood into the net in the Sea of Galilee, stilling the storm, and like a cherry on top, raising a young man from the dead, the widow of Nain's son. During the funeral procession, by the way. Like they're, they're carrying him out for the funeral and he raises him off the bear that they're carrying him on. And having seen all of this, what was their response? First, he casts out devils by Beelzebub. Second, why don't you show us a sign that you're Messiah then? Huh. This is why verse 16 tells us that their request was to tempt Jesus. They were not genuinely desiring to know whether or not he came from God. They were not genuinely seeking a sign. If they were genuinely seeking, and this is what Jesus will tell them, they would have already seen it. There was no sign that Jesus possibly could have given them, which would be enough to convince them. And we'll we'll learn of that more as we continue through Luke, Luke 16 in particular. They were simply seeking an occasion to reject him, an occasion to trip him up, an occasion to accuse him. They were seeking a reason to say no, and they... Here's the thing, if, if, if the human mind wants to find a reason to reject something, it will. Every time. Right? If the human mind wants to find a reason to reject something that their eyes have seen, that their ears have heard, that their hands have touched, they'll find the reason. And as we look through scriptures, we find that God is always willing to show his power to those who are genuinely seeking and those who truly believe. But God will not play the fool. His patience is, is long-suffering. He is kind, but he does not cast his pearls before swine. So we continue here in verse 29. And the scriptures say, uh, we, we already read the scripture, uh, that, that an evil generation seeks a sign. Returning to the text, the scribes and the Pharisees have sought for a sign. And Jesus responds that an evil generation seeks a sign. A generation who is not willing to regard the proofs which are before them. But demand that God bow to their unreasonable expectations in order for him to validate his authority or his existence. And Jesus says this is an evil generation. What men often do is they try to become the judge of God, don't they? They place the burden of proof upon God to convince them that he exists. As if they're interviewing God to see if he's worthy of the privilege of having them as his followers. But it really doesn't work that way, does it? Do you see how backwards that is? Do you see how backwards it is for a man to make any demands of God? How backwards it is for the created to attempt to hold the creator hostage to our expectations, to our understanding, or to our will? But this was the spirit of these religious leaders. 
They did not seek true signs of God in order that they might believe. In fact, on the authority of God's word, had this been the case, they already would have graciously received him. Jesus, God, before him, God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, he gave signs to those who were seeking. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Moses in the burning bush. Pharaoh, Israel, Gideon, many of the kings. God was not hesitant to give signs to those who wanted to see God's power. But this was not the spirit of these leaders. They did not seek for some reason to believe. They sought for some reason not to believe. And this is not uncommon among the Jewish people. The Jews seek a sign, Paul would tell us. They were always seeking signs. So Jesus tells them that a sign will not be given any more than one. He says, save one. And that is the sign of the prophet Jonas. Jonas is the Greek spelling of the Hebrew name Jonah. The prophet being spoken of here is the prophet Jonah. And he says that one sign that God has ordained for them to see is the sign which parallels that of the sign of Jonah. And he elaborates in verse 30. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jesus parallels the sign of Jonas to the sign of Jesus. Jesus, the same sign. And in this we find both a message of mercy and a grave warning of judgment. Now before we speak directly to what the sign was for the day, let's uh, go to the parallel passage in Matthew to consider what Matthew records about these words. Uh, Verses uh, 39 through 40 of Matthew 12, Jesus answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see more connection about what the sign is. The sign, Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. The sign to the Ninevites was that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and this will be a sign unto you. So Luke makes it clear that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Matthew tells us what that sign was, three days and three nights in the belly of the large fish. And so let's dig into this a little bit more and understand Jonah's role to play here as a sign, as a type of Jesus Christ and of what Jesus Christ would suffer. Jonah is an account of a prophet who is sent to a brutal and an evil people to warn them of judgment and to preach unto them repentance. And God tells this prophet of northern Israel named Jonah, go and deliver this message of judgment to the Ninevites. But Jonah does not want to go deliver this message of judgment to the Ninevites. And he does not want to go deliver this message to the Ninevites, presumably, uh, as we continue through the text, because he hates the Assyrian people. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were brutal, hostile, evil people, and they were very, very um, hostile to the nation of Israel. They had been very brutal. So Jonah doesn't want to go preach a message of repentance, because what happens if they repent? Well, then God will show mercy. Jonah doesn't want mercy to rest upon these people. He wants them to be destroyed. So he has this great idea. I run away from God. The message doesn't get to the Ninevites. They get destroyed in God's anger. Everything works out. So he flees. 
He flees from the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that he flees to Tarshish, which would be in present day Spain today across the Mediterranean Sea. So he goes to Joppa where he finds a ship headed to Tarshish. He pays the fare and he, he, he flees from the presence of the Lord. Jonah should have known better. You can't flee from the presence of the Lord, right? So they're on the boat and a storm kicks up. And this storm is going to sink the ship. And the sailors are, are terrified and they, they, they say this must be divine. God must be angry at someone. So they say we got to find out who God's angry at. So they cast lots, which was a form of, 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 of divination of the day where, where God could reveal who or what needed to happen by casting lots. And then the lot would fall upon one certain person. And Jonah, the lot falls on Jonah. That Jonah is the guy. And Jonah says, it's right. It is me. I have done wrong. I have, um, I am fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I'm a prophet. I was told to, told to go do something and I didn't do it. And the solution, Jonah says, is to throw me overboard to appease the wrath of God. Take note. This is another attempt for Jonah to flee from God. If I can't flee from God on a ship, then I'll just die. What's God going to do then? What's God going to do then? I'll die before I go to the Ninevites. Throw me overboard, let me die, you'll appease the wrath of God, and I'll be dead so I still don't go to the Ninevites, right? It's, It's the next level of escape for Jonah. Only God would have none of it. So they throw Jonah over. The tempest does cease. But Jonah, the Bible tells us, God had prepared a great fish to swallow him. Now the King James Version in Matthew says, um, um, a whale, excuse me, it says whale in Matthew. In Jonah, in the book of Jonah, it says a great fish. And this has become one of those elements of, of minor controversy. There's a controversy because people say, well, it says a whale in the King James and a whale is a mammal and a fish is not a, a whale isn't a fish, right? Because a fish is a, not a mammal. And so they use this as a reason to say that the King James is a bad translation. And I think that that's kind of silly personally, that you would split hairs to that degree that you say, okay, we're going we're gonna to use this as proof text that this is a bad translation. It's not a bad translation. Uh, it, is, it is technically a great fish in the Greek. It's technically a great fish in the Hebrew. What that means, I don't know, but you know what? A whale is a pretty big one. So was it a whale? Whatever. He got swallowed by a big fish. And he's in the belly of this big fish, the Bible tells us. Instead of dying, he's suffering in that belly for three days and three nights. And it was a tormenting time. Read Jonah and you'll find that he was not walking around like in this great fish. And he, he was uh, just walking around in there in the darkness. No, it was, it was a time of torment for him. And he realized as he was being tormented in that fish that God was not going to let him run away. And God was not going to let him die. That God was going, he was going to accomplish the purpose that God had set for him. And he repents, the Bible tells us. And when he repents, God has the great fish vomit him out. And Jonah says, okay, God, now what? God says, go do what I told you to do before. Go preach to Nineveh. So he goes and he preaches to Nineveh the message that God had intended. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people, the Bible tells us, of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Jonah 3 verse 5. 
Now, with this brief review in mind, consider a few points regarding Jesus' appeal to this historical account of Jonah. Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites. That's what, that's what this tells us, right? In verse 30 of Luke chapter 11. Then consider as well in Matthew chapter 12 that the sign of Jonah to the Ninevites was what? Him being in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights. Follow me on this. This is, this is a beautiful irony of God. A little tragic for Jonah, but a beautiful irony. Jonah does not make clear why the Ninevites repented, right? It just says Jonah went, he preached, 40 days and the city will be destroyed, and they repented. But what does Matthew and Luke, when we put those two accounts together, what does it tell us about why the Ninevites repented? They repented because they saw a sign. What was that sign? That this man, who had been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, got vomited out and came and preached repentance to them. The very thing that Jonah did to flee from the Lord, to keep repentance from coming to Nineveh, was the sign used by God to convince the Ninevites of the truth of God's word, that this was from God, and made them repent. Theoretically, had Jonah just gone straight to Nineveh without being vomited out of a fish first, they may have listened, heard him and said, who is this God to me? Get lost, and they would have been destroyed. But because Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord and was thrown into the sea and got swallowed by a fish and was there for three days and three nights, then got vomited out, and the Ninevites somehow knew this, and they said, this guy came from the mouth of a fish to tell us of God's judgment, we believe. And that's ironic, is it not? That the very thing that Jonah sought to do to keep the Ninevites from hearing the message of repentance was the very thing that God used to convince the Ninevites of God's judgment. I love that. Probably a bad time for Jonah, but a pretty neat thing, isn't it? So first, we understand that the sign of Jonah was his time in the fish. Second, we need to understand that Jonah's time in the fish was a type, a representation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, so too, Jesus says... He must be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, it's worth noting here as well that this statement by Jesus has become a source of controversy in the church every Resurrection Sunday for many people. By tradition, Jesus died on what we call Good Friday, and he rose again on Sunday morning. Now, we know that Jesus rose again on Sunday morning because the women came to anoint his body on the first day of the week, right? On the morning of the first day of the week which would be Sunday. So we know that. And Jesus uses very specific language here, stating that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, if you do your math and you work backwards from Sunday morning, three days and three nights, you're not going to hit Friday, technically speaking. In fact, if Friday is the day according to this specific language, then he would have only been in the earth effectively for one actual day and two actual nights. Others conclude, therefore, that Jesus was actually crucified on Wednesday, not on Friday, in order to make the day thing work. However, the problem with him being crucified on Wednesday is that he had to be pulled down from the cross quickly. Why? Because the next day was a Sabbath. And the Sabbath was the sixth day of the week, which is why we believe he was crucified on Friday. So is this a great contradiction? Well, it is, but it's not. 
it's, there is a contradiction in our understanding, but there's not a contradiction in the Word of God. And we know there's not a contradiction in the Word of God because God's Word does not contradict itself. We know that God's Word is true. There are many proponents of both sides that offer solutions to this controversy. Some who say Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, some who say Thursday, some who say Friday. Depending on how you calculate the days, any of those days could actually work. And it just depends on what the Jews had going on at that time. And there's question marks. Some say that there was an extra Sabbath added because it was a feast week. It was the beginning of the Passover. So things were unique at that time. Uh, some say there was an extra Sabbath added. And that's where you get the Sabbath on, on perhaps um, Friday instead of Saturday. Um, or perhaps Thursday instead of Friday. And, and, and there's, there's several different possible explanations. None of them are completely satisfying to me. But at the end of the day, uh, what we know is this. That Jesus died on the cross. He spent three days in the heart of the earth. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You do need to know that that controversy is out there though and that there are good proponents on both sides but I don't think it's something we need to become overtly hostile over. It doesn't need to split a church. It doesn't need to become something that we fight with people about. Um, We know Jesus died on the cross. We know he rose again. We know the word of God is true and every time we come to the word of God and there's there's uh, limits to what we to, to, to what we know or we find uh, seeming contradictions. Here is what we know. The limits are not with the word of God. The contradiction is not in the word of God. It's in the limits of our understanding. Whether that's historically, whether that's culturally, whether that's linguistically, the limit is here. The problem's not here. So we continue. As Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus says he would be assigned to that generation of God's mercy and also a warning of God's sure judgment, right? That's what Jonah was. Jonah's as a sign. He was vomited out of this fish, and as he was vomited out of this fish, then he went to Nineveh and he preached judgment with mercy. So too, Jesus says, I'm going to go into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I am preaching judgment with mercy. Mercy if you will listen, judgment if you will not. And then he begins to focus in on historical accounts that will help these listeners understand just what they're missing, just what they're rejecting. And he does so in a way that that is very similar to the woes which Jesus gave upon Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum in Luke 10. He says this in verse, excuse me, verse 31. He says, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. uh, Jesus first appeals to the queen of Sheba, who heard of Solomon's glory, the peace and the happiness of Solomon's servants, and sought to see it for herself. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord... Notice this, the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She is going to hear if there is a true God in heaven who is blessing this man. Not just, I want to meet this man. I want to, I want to know about the God behind this man. It's what it says here in 1 Kings 10. So she came to prove him. With hard questions. Continuing in verse 6, then verse 9 of 1 Kings 10. And she said to the king... It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of the acts and of thy wisdom. 
Verse 9, blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on a throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. So the queen of Sheba came with a heart of genuine inquiry to genuinely know whether or not the Lord was there. And she found what she was looking for, didn't she? When she had proved Solomon's wisdom and seen with her eyes his prosperity, she was willing to change her mind. That's the concept of repentance. She was willing to repent, to change her mind, to declare God's loving nature over Israel and declare that the God of Israel was the true and living God. She was curious. She sought for a sign. A sign was given to her and she repented. She changed her mind. Jesus says that this woman sought truth and when it became obvious, she submitted to that truth. Where she, a pagan woman in a far land, accepted the truth that was right before her eyes when the truth was only seen through a fallible example of Solomon, not even through the word of God incarnate, but just through Solomon. How much better is Jesus than Solomon as an an illustration of truth? Yet these Pharisees had rejected the truth that came directly from Jesus. It says a pagan woman traveled from Sheba to see Solomon and she believed what she saw with her eyes. And she will rise up and condemn you on the day of judgment because you did not believe, though the very word of God made flesh stood before you and did miracles. Jesus appeals to the same thing with Nineveh. Jesus says in verse 32, The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Nineveh responded to the reality of God's message through the preaching of Jonah. They saw the sign. They believed the sign. They heard the preaching of of the truth. And they responded. They responded. Though Jonah was a fallible man. And as we look in Jonah, after they repented, Jonah went up on a hill and he said, I'm going to sit on this hill until that city is destroyed. And he threw a little pity party for himself. And God had to rebuke him again. This man was not a man who was an exemplary pupil as far as it goes, right? He was a fallible man. And yet the truth that they heard and they saw in him was enough for them to repent. And Jesus says, now an infallible man. The word of God in flesh comes to you, does signs and wonders and preaches to you the truth of God. And you've rejected me. Nineveh, that wicked city will rise and condemn you on the day of judgment because they believed and you would not. Nineveh sought truth, found truth. However, the Pharisees were self-righteous. They had missed God's way of salvation because they had blinded their own hearts. They were seeking to earn God's favor through this self-righteousness. They were bigoted in their prejudice toward those only of the bloodline of Abraham. They openly rejected the signs and wonders that Jesus did in the name of God. And again, I remind you, this is not unusual for that nation. In fact, this is the very message of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7. Verses 51 to 53, Stephen said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? 
And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. This was common throughout every generation of the Jewish people, even unto today, by the way. They are a stiff-necked people, unwilling to hear. Every prophet God sent to them has been rejected and caused to suffer. And Jesus is telling them that this generation was no different. That even though a greater than Solomon was there, even though a greater than Jonah was there, even though a greater than Abraham stood before them, they would not believe. So where is Jesus going with this? What's the point? Continue in verse 32. Excuse me, verse 33. Jesus says, No man... When he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. And this is an interesting verse to find here. This is a different account from the one in Matthew. In Matthew, we find this illustration used when Jesus is preaching to his disciples on them being the light of the world, on them being the salt of the earth. This is not Jesus speaking to his disciples on them being the light of the world, is it? But Jesus is using the same illustration, and I don't know if you've ever used an illustration twice, but um, but I do all the time. As a matter of fact, every week in the jail, I'm rehashing the same illustration over and over with a new person in a little bit of a different angle. So Jesus is using a similar illustration, but he's coming at it from a different angle. He's speaking to a different group, and he's giving a different object. Whereas he was telling his disciples, you need to be the light of the world. In this context, he's saying, I'm the light. I'm the one. On, I'm the candle. I'm up on the candlestick. I'm the light. Jesus is telling them that his sign will be open for all to see. He is not, uh, Jesus is not an arbiter of secret knowledge. He's not trying to hide the light. He says, when a person has light, they, they put it out for everybody to see. They don't hide it under a bushel. Jesus is highlighting his own ministry and particularly the sign which will be given. That's the sign of his death, burial and resurrection. The light of the gospel, the sign of his resurrection, the truths of God are manifest and will be manifest to all men. He sits as a candle upon a candlestick, not as a candle in a secret place. Jesus' light is not hidden for people so that they cannot see it. It's evident, it's manifest, and it's open for all. And as we'll see over the next three verses, Jesus is saying that anyone who does not see that Jesus is the Messiah of God, at that time when Jesus is upon the earth, when he's doing the miracles, that Jesus' message is the truth of God. It's not that they don't see it because they have no light, but they don't see it because they have closed their eyes to the light. They have run from the light because it was not hid from them. Verse 34, the light of the body, Jesus says, is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. This is also found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus using it in a different context right before he warns about trying to serve God and mammon at the same time. So in Matthew 6, Jesus is warning about the disciples closing their eyes to the truth. In, in here in Luke 11, Jesus is warning about the Pharisees, the unbelievers closing their eyes to the truth. And Jesus says this, the light of the body is the eye. He uses an illustration of the physical to illustrate the spiritual. And he says the light of the body is the eye. What he means by this is that we see through our eyes, right? And it is the only means by which our body has the ability to truly see. Now, a person that cannot see can feel around for things. They can grope around, but they cannot get a proper understanding and perspective 
orientation on their environment because the eyes are the only way to see. There's no other sense, there's no other organ that can replace the eyes as it relates to understanding the world around us. So Jesus says, if a man's eye is single, that word literally meaning clear. If a man's eyes are clear, then the whole body can benefit from the feedback. If you've got glasses and you have a really um, bad, uh, if you have really bad eyesight to where you really need your glasses and you take your glasses off, all of a sudden the world becomes a different place, right? Now, now some of us, we can see things still. Uh, I can see pretty well without my glasses. Some people can see blurry shapes, right? Some people, it's just one big blur. Uh, it just depends. But if you, if you have bad eyes, if your eyes are not clear, if your eyes are not single, then it is going to affect your capacity to function. A person that needs glasses goes and tries to play football or goes to try to play baseball and they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle because they're not going to be able to gauge depth properly. They're not going to be able to catch the ball, see the ball, see the people running, whatever it might be. It's going to be a problem. When your eyes are not clear, your whole body, uh, if your eyes are clear, your whole body is full of light. I can do things better when I can see clearly. I can manipulate things better. I can do small things. Um, I can do big things, whatever it might be, when my eyes are clear. When my eyes are not clear, Also, but when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness, the scriptures say. Thy body is full of darkness. When there's something wrong with your eyes, it affects the whole body. You're not able to see where you're going, to see what you're doing. You're going to trip, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're going to lose things, you're going to miss things, you're going to hit things. Because your eye is evil. That's That's the idea there. It's diseased, it's malfunctioning. The whole body is unable to benefit from the feedback of the eyes. Do you see the illustration? The eyes are the means by which the body is able to navigate. Without the eyes, no pun intended, the body is navigating blind. Quite literally. So the body is full of darkness because the eyes aren't working right. And it's the only way to see. The only way to see is to absorb light through the eyes. And Jesus then translates this illustration into the spiritual. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Jesus says, take heed that your spiritual eyes are not diseased or malfunctioning, and so they are groping about in spiritual darkness. If Jesus is the light, and he has been put on a candlestick so that the whole, everybody in the house can see him, so that everybody can see him, because he has been elevated, he's not hiding his light, you don't have to go find secret knowledge to find Christ, you don't have to go to the, climb the highest hill, or meditate in a temple for 30 years to find him. He is there. He is for everybody. He is, he, he is evident. He is for all. If that is true, then the only thing keeping people from seeing that light is their willingness to see that light. And Jesus warns that we not have eyes closed. To the light. Because no matter how bright the light shines, if our spiritual eyes are darkened, if we shut our eyes to the truth, we will not see the light. Doesn't matter how bright it is in this room. If I close my eyes and I try to do it and I try to function this way, no matter how bright things get, my eyes being closed, I'm not going to be able to function properly. It's just not going to work. 
you can get as much light as you want. See, all of uh, there's lots of people practicing with the eyes closed thing today. That's good. No. Just trying to keep it light here. Except I threw myself off. Okay, if, if my eyes are closed, no matter how bright, no matter how bright I make things, my eyes being closed, it's not going to help. It's not going to help me navigate any better, is it? It's just not. Jesus says, take heed that the light that is in you is not darkness. Take heed that you're not closing your eyes to the truth. And this is what had happened to the Pharisees. Jesus had risen the dead back to life. Jesus had walked on water. Jesus had done amazing things. That day he had cast out a demon and they closed their eyes and they said, show us a sign. Why, why won't you show us a sign? Jesus says, open your eyes and you'll see it. Just open it. So he says in verse 36, where we'll finish and then we'll apply this evening. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light. As when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Jesus says that if our eyes are open to see the truth, then when it comes, it will fill us and it will fill every part of us. That your legs will work properly because you can see where you're walking. That your hands will work properly because you can see what you're touching. That you will work properly. That every part of you will work properly because it is full of light through the eyes. My fingers don't have little eyes. So if I close my eyes, but hey, with my fingers I can do things. Yes, I can feel around, but I need my eyes in order for my fingers to be at maximum efficiency. I need my eyes in order for my feet to be at maximum efficiency. My legs, every part of me. I need my eyes. I need light. Jesus says, if you open your spiritual eyes then your whole body will be full of light. As when the bright shining of a candle does give thee light. So too, if we open our spiritual eyes, if we're seeking truth genuinely, God will shine that light. And when it shines, it will shine into every part of your spirit and it will make everything change. It will illuminate every element of life. So it doesn't just illuminate the spiritual, does it? When you have accepted the light of Christ, it's not just the spiritual that's illuminated. It's every part of life. You think about everything differently, don't you? It changes the way you think about politics. It changes the way you think about culture. It changes the way you think about society. It changes the way you think about raising children. It changes the way you think about money. It changes the way you think about entertainment. It changes the way you think about speaking, about walking, about talking, about driving. It changes the way you think about everything because everything is filtered through light. You see the world for what it truly is in the light of God's word. Everything changes when your body is filled with light. Jesus says, I'm up on a candlestick, so it's not me trying to hide anything from you. It's whether or not your eyes are open and your back is, you're facing me. Or is your back turned and your eyes closed? Well, you're going to struggle a little bit. Because you are keeping yourself from the light. Such was the warning to the Pharisees and Sadducees on this day who said, Lord, we seek a sign from you. And such is the warning to us as well. Now, as I mentioned, we'll do the application this evening. It's perhaps less than ideal to break up the entire sermon from teaching to application, but praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God who is within you can do the applying as well without my help, most certainly. 
But I would ask one question of you as we close today. How are your spiritual eyes? We began with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you accepted that gospel? Have you opened your eyes and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ on His terms? Your terms don't work, folks. You can't do it on your terms. You can't say, well, I'll believe in Jesus, but I'll, I'll hedge my bets. I'll have a plan B. I'll, I'll just be sure. I'll, I'll try to earn my way there anyway. It doesn't work that way. No plan B. You're either in or you're out. Have you accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ on His terms? Salvation by grace through faith alone, not by any works, lest any man should boast. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. If you've not, would you open your spiritual eyes to that today? Secondly, believer. We'll talk about this more tonight. Do you know that you can close your spiritual eyes as well? Yes, you're, you, you, you have the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling. But there are many a believer, many a church who have shut their spiritual eyes to certain elements of truth in God's word, haven't they? And look, if we shut our eyes to elements of truth in God's word, what will replace it is darkness. To that area of life. To that portion of godliness. There will be darkness. Are there places in your life where you've just said, God, I'm willing to, I'm willing to listen, but not, to, not, not that. You can't have that. That's my area. This is mine. I'm, I'm going to shut my ears. And then things aren't going as you would expect. And you say, God, what's wrong? God, why? Well, maybe it's because you're harboring unforgiveness. Sure, you'll read your Bible. Sure, you'll come to church, but you're harboring unforgiveness. Sure, you'll, you'll read your Bible. Sure, you'll come to church, but there's anger. Or you're... Uh, you're, you're lying or you're cheating. There's an area of your life that you haven't given over. It's yours. God can't have that. God, what's going on? Why can't you just show me? Well, maybe it's because you've closed your spiritual eyes. He's tried. And you've said, nope. I'm just going to keep these closed, lest the light shine into that area of darkness, which I want to stay. How are your spiritual eyes today? I cannot simply assume that just because you're in church, your spiritual eyes are open to the truth. You may be sitting here under rebellion. Biding your time, waiting for with some unique ulterior motive. You may have been around the light, but have your eyes shut to the light. Your question to God may not be a question of genuine seeking, but only of personal self-justification. More tempting God than actually seeking God. May I encourage you to search your own heart today. And we'll apply this evening in several ways. Before today, let's this morning, maybe even this afternoon, you can be preparing your heart. Lord, is there any area of my spiritual life where I've shut my eyes? Where my eyes are not open, where they're not willing to receive, where you've tried to show me signs and I've not seen them because I've closed my eyes to that avenue of truth. And then perhaps this evening the Lord can do more to manifest those in our hearts. Let's close in prayer.